Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Old Providence Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. I should have said it already. If you don't have one of these, you really do need it this morning. Make sure that you get a bulletin because, as it has been while we've been in here, it has the music for today. Also, the Lord's Prayer and Apostles' Creed is on the insert in your bulletin separate from this, but it also has our scripture passage. So be aware of that. Again, welcome, everybody. What a joy it is to be with you today as it's the Lord that has called you here today. And me here today, all of us, and, and I welcome you no matter the circumstances that, that, that you're facing as you're here. Maybe you've been here your whole life. Maybe you're brand new here. It doesn't matter. It is the Lord that has brought us together. And I'm delighted we have this time. Now, um, as we come together, let me just point you to your bulletin and encourage you to be aware of the goings on, okay? Lots of things are, are rolling week by week now. There's also save the date forms for a, uh, a women's ministries event that's going to be happening at Lauderdale ARP. You can find those close to the bulletins too. So ladies, be aware of that. Now, again, weeks are rolling by. And speaking of weeks, I've had an interesting one. Now listen, everybody stay calm. I don't want to cause panic. I don't want people jumping out of windows and that sort of thing. But Isabella has flu and COVID at the exact same time. So I'm staying away from everybody. I'm trying to, to stand back. I've resisted the urge to shout unclean, you know, anytime somebody comes near. So, and I, I feel just fine. Amanda woke up at two o'clock not feeling so well, so she's not here today either. Maybe I'm the next one to bite the dust. I don't know, but I'm praying not. So uh, just be aware. I'm not going to be shaking hands for that reason, obviously. Um, there's a deacons meeting today at four deacons. Can we maybe meet in here so I can join y'all instead of being you know, close quarters in the, the room down here? All right. So um, speaking of that, your deacons meeting today at four. Session meeting tomorrow night at six. Now, because of, of this situation, no youth group tonight at 5.30 and certainly no little lambs. We don't want to spread that love around. I'm sure that y'all understand. Now, again, other things in your bulletin in there about just the week-to-week -week daily things that are going on around here. Um, if you have any questions, by all means, reach out. I'd be happy to answer those. Again, I welcome you. What a blessing it is that the Lord has given us this time that he's given us this place that, that we can come together in worship. So let's prepare our hearts for worship as Donna leads us in the prayer. Well, as we come together, our call to worship this morning is found in Psalm 50, and I'm using this for the call to worship for a reason that will come out later, right at the end of the actual uh, sermon this morning. But it says this, and it's certainly applicable in all ways, but it says in Psalm 50 that the mighty one, God, the Lord speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him and a storm rages around him. 
On high he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. My friends, this passage that we've just read contains that line that perhaps you've heard before in describing who God is, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. And indeed, that is an accurate description of how mighty our God is, that no one compares to him. But you realize the context of this is the Lord saying to Israel, I'm tired of your sacrifices. What I really desire is your hearts. I don't need your cattle, your bulls, or your goats. I'm not like you. Instead, it's your heart that I desire. As I've said, we'll come back to this concept in just a little bit. But this is a fitting call to worship as we come together to worship. We don't have a, an altar before us. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice once and for all. We we don't have to make any of those sorts of sacrifices. And yet, as we come, we should come with grateful hearts, hearts that are full with love and gratitude for Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Now, as we continue, let's take our inserts and sing number 244. Let's sing of our King as we sing, Come Thou Almighty King, number 244. Please stand. Oh. Uh -huh. 
seated now, let us go to our Lord in prayer, after which we'll pray the Lord's Prayer and confess the Apostles' Creed. But let's go to him now. Our God and our Father, we praise you that you have called us here. We thank you that you have provided for us in that we can be here, working all things to this moment in our lives where you give us the opportunity to stop, to pull out of the day-to-day grind. And in stopping, you give us the opportunity to focus on you, your love, your mercy, your goodness. And as we just have lifted up to you, we ask that you would attend to us, that our worship would be glorifying to your name, that you would be pleased with it, that that you would attend to our prayers, that you would bless us, your people. Father, we are so grateful. Work in our hearts now that we would focus on you. Let us see your glory in this place. We pray it all in Christ's name, and we also pray as he taught us to pray, by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now as we say the Apostles' Creed together, let me ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed. And now let us continue our time of worship by standing again as we take our insert and sing Bible song number 207, Grateful Adoration. Bible song 207. Please stand.
may be seated. And at this time, children may be dismissed for Children's Church right over this way. And as they are being dismissed, let's take this time to go to our Lord in silent prayer. And then I'll lead us in the pastoral prayer. But as we go to him in silent prayer, consider what we've lifted up in song, what we have read from his word already. Consider who the Lord is, this Lord that we serve. Let's go to him now in silent prayer. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, truly your name is great in all the earth. There is none besides you. None can compare to you. And not only in your power and in your might, for indeed you are the creator, our creator. You sit enthroned in all of your majesty above, ordaining and maintaining all things, holding all things together. As we look at the imagery in your word that you can hold the universe in the palm of your hand, that you're everywhere all at once, certainly, Father, none can compare to you. And yet, Father, inasmuch as you are incomparable in terms of your power, so are you incomparable in terms of your love. For just like nobody's as powerful as you, nobody loves like you. No one shows mercy like you and grace and patience. For Father, though we know who you are, though we know who you have called us to be, and you've spelled it out very clearly in your word, but also you've written your law in our hearts too. We know who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. But so often we want to do things our way instead. Instead of acting out of gratitude to you for your, your mercy and your love and your generosity. We belittle your gifts. When we go our own way. And just turn our backs on you. Or when we reduce your generosity to something that we have to work our way towards when we know that you worked your way to us through Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for these transgressions, for that's what they are. Forgive us for those times when we would rather go our way instead of yours, when we think that we know better, or when we just don't care enough to change our behavior. Forgive us for those times when we reduce your generosity as some sort of pay-to-play situation as if you can be bargained with. Father, it is our desire to have right relationship with you. As we have gone on to the book of Ezra, and we see the great task of your people is to reconnect with you in some ways, to return to right worship. As the psalmist prayed, so we lift up, creating us a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within us. 
As we face challenges to this, we pray that you would work in those challenges. Sometimes they're of a physical variety, and indeed, there's lots of medical things going on, even in my own family right now. Please give protection and healing. For those that have procedures coming up, we think of Libby, that this week, finally, her, her knee is going to be addressed. We pray that the doctors would be skilled in their work. She wouldn't have any difficulties as a result of it, but instead, recovery would be quick. And still other situations are happening that aren't so much physical, but are emotional or spiritual or even just relational. Father, you know what's in a man's heart. John, John chapter 2 tells us that. Jesus knows what's in a man's heart. And, and, and Father, you understand what it is to work with people. But sometimes we're hard on each other. And we don't love like we should. We don't extend the grace that's been extended to us. So... If it's relational challenges that we face to trusting and following you, then please address those too. Whether they be on the external front at work or those sorts of relationships or maybe internally with family, with close friends, with others in our church. You know these things, Father. Please be at work and not just for our sake, though, though we benefit from it. Please be at work for your sake and for your kingdom. For our desire is what we've just lifted up, that your kingdom would come in all of its fullness and glory, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The things of heaven would happen here. We know this is why you have redeemed a people for yourself, even us. So let our desire, let our focus be your kingdom. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you very much, choir. What a wonderful reminder that is of how the Lord works, who the Lord is. And that's, that's one of those concepts of the excellence of the Lord that in some ways and in some times is a very easy concept to grasp. However, when the Lord doesn't do things our way, do we still maintain his excellence? This, of course, is the challenge of trusting in him. So thank you very much, choir, for that reminder. Now, if you were here with us last week, you will know that we started something new, and we went somewhere new. I alluded to it in my uh, pastoral prayer. The book of Ezra is what we started. So go ahead and turn to Ezra 1 with me. Yes, Ezra, that, that little book of the Bible after Second Chronicles, before Nehemiah, and again, if you don't have your Bibles, I, I wish you'd bring them, but if you don't have them, our passage is actually in the bulletin insert. But um, it's that little book after Second Chronicles, before Nehemiah, that really chronicles the twofold struggle of God's people. They got two things going on. First, they return from exile in Babylon to rebuild the temple, right? But also, a struggle to rebuild right relationship with God. And as I said last week, one of these struggles involves tearing down that which had been almost entirely destroyed, removing rubble, casting aside things that used to mean a whole lot, returning the things that still had great value, uh, deciding what to keep, what to get rid of. Also, honest assessment of real danger from enemies that didn't want the rebuilding to take place. An honest assessment of how things got torn down to begin with. And the other struggle involved rebuilding the temple. Like I talked about last week, the greatest struggle we face. Isn't it always ourselves? In Ephesians 4, I alluded to this last week, the Apostle Paul he wrote about our struggle, the real struggle that we face. Not only that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against darkness. But in Ephesians 4 in particular, he adds to this, and he says that we struggle against the old one. The old one living inside us, that old sinful nature that we're all born with. And our struggle is to put on the new self, created to be like Jesus. And in this process, we battle. Oh, we battle. War is waged. If you ever struggle with temptation, then you know. But also, if you struggled, you know that we're not alone in this battle. Jesus has given us one another, the church, certainly, that he continues to build. Even more so, he's given us the Holy Spirit as our, our helper, our comforter, our counselor, so that we can be less like our old selves and more like him. And we know that Christ ultimately shall prevail in this. Because like we saw last week, just in the first couple of verses of Ezra, God always keeps his word. That's the first thing we focused on last week. Number one, God always keeps his word. And second, God is able to do the impossible to keep his word. Oh, he can do the impossible. And it's, it's with that idea that we ended last week and where we're picking up this week. But also... In addition to seeing more evidence that God's able to do the impossible to keep his word, today we're also going to learn a valuable lesson about our own hearts and who God desires us to be. Now, that's enough intrigue and introduction. Let's pray, and then we're going to start reading in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1, but let's go to him now. Our God and our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would work in our hearts and in our minds that we could understand things 
certainly on the conceptual level that we would get what's going on here. But much deeper, we pray that we would see you, that we would see Christ Jesus, and that we would see ourselves, that we would understand how your word applies, and in seeing it, that your spirit would convict us to trust, to follow, to be of cheer even as you do what you, as we do what you've commanded us to do. We, we can't do any of these things on our own. We need you. So please, guide us now. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. And so, Ezra, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem and Judah to build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So, the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to that which was given as a free will offering. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them brought out under the supervision of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver knives, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver or various silver bowls, and 1,000 other articles. The gold and silver articles totaled 5,400. Sheshbazar brought all of them when the exiles went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're going to stop reading right there. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen and amen. Now, we've read it. I've already told you the two things that we're focusing on today. That God is able to do the impossible to keep his promises... And that we'll also receive a valuable lesson about our own hearts and, and who God wants us to be. But let's talk about the first one first. That God's able to do the impossible to keep his promises. Now we began last week with this concept that, that we recognize that God, against all God, uh, against all odds, did what we've read. He, he compelled King Cyrus, the emperor of the Persian Empire, to not only send God's people back to Jerusalem, but to help finance their return and, and the rebuilding of the temple and ultimately to finance the kingdom of Judah. Now, I joked around about this last week, but I talked about my temptation last week was to title my sermon, We're going to rebuild the temple and Persia is going to pay for it. But y'all, that, that's what's happening here. As I said last week, Cyrus didn't do this because he knew and loved God. 
Think about what we just read a couple of minutes ago. In verse 3, Cyrus refers to the God of Israel as their God, not his. Cyrus recognizes the power of God. There's no doubt about that. But, but he doesn't claim God for his own God. He, in fact, in verse 4, in his ignorance, he talks about God as though the God of, of Judah. He lives in Jerusalem. And we know that God is everywhere at all times. He's, he's not bound by time and space like we are, or like these, these petty gods of Persia. He's omnipresent. But Cyrus didn't, didn't recognize these things, so he didn't do this because he, he knew or loved God. He, he also didn't do this because he was a nice guy. As we talked about last week, he did have that whole empire thing going on, right, where you go in and you kill a lot of people, and then you say, your stuff is now my stuff, okay? It made no sense for him to build somebody else's kingdom as he built his own but it's not even just that. We're talking about economic niceness, all right? The Persians, realize y'all, the Persians were some of the cruelest people in the history of the world. So much so that all these years later, almost 3,000 years later, 2,500 years later, people still talk about their torture methods and their methods for, for public execution, right? So their word for question and torture in Persian language, it was the exact same word. You know, so the idea is if you get arrested for something, you're going to talk. It may be true and it may not be true, but you're going to talk, right? And really and truly, I, I can't even talk about their execution methods in mixed company. They, they are just that horrific, okay? And Cyrus is their leader. The Persian war machine what was, was mightier and crazier than anybody had ever seen. So why would Cyrus do this? Well, the overall answer is God can do the impossible, but it goes deeper still to illustrate this. Now, not only did God work the impossible to bring Cyrus to this point, not only did God compel Cyrus to do this, do you know that God, I, I talked about it a little bit last week, God said that Cyrus would do this by name, over 200 years prior to this. Again, y'all, God can do the impossible. But we know that, that what we've read, let, let's, let's step back and do a little bit of history here. We know that what we've just read about, okay, verse 1, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, we know that Cyrus became a king in 559 B.C. 20 years later, he would become the king of Persia, okay? So we know that in the first year of King Cyrus, that's 539 A.D. But if you rewind, if you go back further, long before this, starting all the way back in 739 and perhaps even earlier, 200 years plus earlier, not only did God through Isaiah make the promise that one day he was going to send his people back after Jerusalem was destroyed, not only did God promise that one day the temple would be rebuilt after it was destroyed, God mentioned Cyrus by name before he was ever born. Before his father was ever born. Before his grandfather was ever born. And he did this in two spots. The first is in Isaiah 44 where Isaiah talks about the wonders of God's hands. How God will accomplish all these promises that he's given to Judah. But then he says in verse 28, it says that God who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, 
let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Oh, this is 200 years before Cyrus ever became king of Persia. Hundreds of years before he was ever born. And not only here, in Isaiah 45, God says to Cyrus, God addresses Cyrus before, he's ever, before his father is ever even a twinkle in his grandfather's eye. God addresses Cyrus by name. And he says, this is what the Lord says to his anointed. This is Isaiah 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue the nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. Now, the context of this is God saying, Jerusalem, Judah, you're about to be destroyed because you don't trust in me. And my servant from the north, Babylon's going to do it. But Babylon's going to get theirs too. And he says to Cyrus here, even though Cyrus isn't even born, nobody knows who Cyrus is. Isaiah's prophesying this. People are like, who's, who's Cyrus? What, what is this all about? People are even wondering when Isaiah spoke, they didn't believe him about Judah being destroyed either. But nevertheless, before all of these things happen, God names him. Do, do you get how amazing this is? How could God say this 200 years prior? And the answer is because God is able to do the impossible to accomplish his will and to keep his word. That's how he, he called Cyrus his shepherd which was synonymous with king. He calls Cyrus his servant and his anointed one, all for the purpose of accomplishing his will. And if you need more evidence that God is able to do the impossible, evidence that's perhaps even more compelling than mentioning Cyrus by name 200 years earlier, fulfilling this prophecy, consider again what we've read. Now, chapter 1, we've read it. it. It details Cyrus's decree that God's people should return. Yes, we get that. But also... We can't overlook the circumstances of their return. Look at verse 2 again. It says, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor... Wherever he resides, be assisted by men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, pause. I get it. It's impossible that God named Cyrus 200 years earlier, that he worked in his heart, all of these things. But there's something else that we can't miss that shows that God does the impossible. Again, jokingly, but, but really quite serious. Judah is going to rebuild the temple, and Persia really is going to pay for it. And, and not only will the temple be paid for, God's people's finance, their return will be financed through the people of Persia. Y'all, I alluded to this last week. The last time that this happened was when the Israelites left Egypt. Remember that? The plagues befell Egypt, the last of which was the dreaded, that the angel of death came over and killed the firstborn in every Egyptian household. And so when Pharaoh released the Israelites, 
the people of Egypt were so ready for them to go that they showered them with gold and with riches. And those golden riches would later be fashioned to form the elements of the tabernacle. God's house of worship in the desert. What, what did we just read about? We just read about the people of Persia showering the Lord's people with all of these gifts. And not only that, we read about how Cyrus, he took all of these artifacts of the ancient temple that were stolen. These artifacts that were placed in Nebuchadnezzar's house of gods, right? Nebuchadnezzar's little own Ripley's believe it or not. He treated them as trinkets, as spoils of war. And he returns them, and it's the same thing that we saw previously with Egypt. But also we see something else even besides this. We need to be careful here. Because not only is this evidence that God can do the impossible, an extremely valuable lesson is also revealed here in what we read about the heart. About motivation. About why we're to do what we do. Especially as it relates to giving. And y'all, I... I get it. Giving itself is a sensitive subject, subject, though it need not be. I, I said something last week that surprised some of you. And some of you have made note of it to me. But I said in my sermon last week that I have never, in 22 years of preaching, preached a sermon on tithing. And, that, and it's true. And I'll tell you why. It's not complicated. It's not because I don't believe in it or anything like that. I've, I've never had the opportunity. Y'all know how I preach at this point. The vast majority of the time... I go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book through the, through the Bible. And, and as far as the books that I cover, I like to go back and forth, right? We just finished Philippians in the New Testament, so now I chose Ezra in the Old Testament. When I first came to you, I started preaching through Ephesians in the New Testament. Then when we were done with Ephesians, I went to Jonah in the Old Testament. And in my 22 years of preaching and following this pattern, I've, just, I've never preached a book of the Bible that covers specifically the issue of tithing. And while I may preach one day on one of those passages, today's not the day. Because our passage shows that God is able to do the impossible through giving. Not just tithing, through giving. And why do I say this? Because, y'all, the basis of tithing, make no doubt about it, or have no doubt about it, the basic of tithing, basics of tithing is, 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 is that of duty. That we dedicate 10% of what we have to the Lord. And, and y'all, this is serious business. Some people have really faulty ideas about tithing, that it's just an Old Testament thing, that, that it's invalidated by the new. And, and if that's you, I would encourage you to read Malachi 3. I'll, I'll read it very quickly. But in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, God said through the prophet Malachi, he said, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. So that principle of returning to the Lord from the abundance that he has given remains true. God does not change. But that's not what this passage is about. And in fact, though we do have that responsibility, we are called to something much higher. 
especially in the New Testament, much higher as God's people. We're, we're not to give out of a sense of obligation, but instead we're called on to give out of a sense of gratitude, to give free will offerings, not because you got to, but because you get to. Not giving out of fear of a curse, but out of love because you recognize that nothing you have comes from you alone. I've talked about this recently. Think about it. Whether it's your intellect, right, your physical strength, your talents, your abilities, the resources you have in, these possession, in your possession, don't all of these come from the Lord? And y'all, the idea behind Christian giving, which is what we're called to, is that we're to give from the heart. And that's what the Lord loves. Consider our, our passage again as evidence of this, that Cyrus, he didn't issue some tax proclamation. No, instead he said, verse 4, let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. And as we read, that, that's what happened. It's that concept of the free will offering. The gesture out of gratitude, out of respect, out of love. And y'all, the Persians did this. They didn't even worship the God of Israel. And yet we find, verse 6, all the neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a free will offering. And then it goes to talk about all the things that King Cyrus had returned, these articles from the temple. Y'all, none of these gifts were required, you see. What you see here, you want to see God doing the impossible? The Lord worked in their hearts, even in these pagan people's hearts, to give freely including those articles from the previous temple. And this is the way giving should be, that giving should come from the heart. Why? Two reasons. Number one, all right, giving from the heart glorifies God. Giving from the heart glorifies God. When you give from the heart, when you give that free will offering, you see God glorified. In the case of what we've read with the temple articles, it's quite literal you know, for the purpose of glorifying God. It's returning these things to the temple for the purpose of temple worship. But y'all, it just goes beyond, it goes beyond just that, right? It, you know, when we give for the purpose of glorifying God, it goes to the very core of why we're created. And people wonder all the time, what's wrong with the world around us? And, and all these identity things that we're facing where people are always, you know, people are always looking for a group to belong to. Sometimes it, it, it's, it's crazy stuff. Sometimes it's just normal stuff. We like to be identified by groups. Ford, Chevy, UVA, Virginia Tech. Some of you have green tractors. Some of you have red tractors. I mean, we, we like to be identified in, in groups, right? But now, in the world around us, we've taken this a step further that we're getting into this gender identity stuff. That I was created this way, but I really identify as that. And, and y'all, there's a reason why this, this really, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be political, I'm not trying to step on toes, but 
this issue of people with, with a gender identity, up until very recently, this was identified even by atheists as mental illness. Okay? And it is. And that's an extremely hard life when you face that. These people, y'all, it's so easy to be angry and to hate. These people need love because it's so miserable to say, I am created this way, but I will make myself something else. The suicide rates are catastrophic in the transgender community because it is just that. It's, it, it's this proclamation to God, whether intended or not, saying to God, I am not who you made me to be, so I will create myself. And that creates a world of loathing and loneliness that, that we cannot imagine. Y'all, to get to the core of who we're really supposed to be, you wonder why the world is so crazy. It's because we're always trying to find ourselves. It's because we're always trying to find the group that's supposed to bring meaning. But God has told us in his word how we are to, to behave. He's told us in his word what we were created to do. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism. The first question is, what is man's chief end? In other words, why are we here? Anybody remember the answer from your catechism? I see yeah, Kevin shake his head to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's exactly right. To glorify God. And when we give from the heart, not only do we glorify God, we get to the core of who he created us to be. Because who's more glorious than God? Who's greater than God? That's why giving should come from the heart. Number one, because it glorifies God. And number two, because God loves a cheerful giver. And don't take my word for it. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. You know, this is why I don't harp on tithing. Tithing implies duty and being compelled. Ministers preach on Malachi 3 and say, you want to know what your problem is? You don't give God enough, and that's why you're under a curse and your children and all this. No. We're called to something more than that. As we just read, we're not to give under compulsion. We aren't to give stingily or with the idea of getting honor. We aren't to, to give or to withhold giving based on our whims. God gives to you freely. He's not calling on you to just tithe. He calls on you to give sacrificially even, not when every other thing is paid up or when you feel like you can or should give something. For, you know, for some, a tithe, which strictly speaking, tithe is 10%. For some, a tithe, it's far too much and it's, it's incredibly painful. And yet for some, 10% is far too little, especially given the abundance that God has given you. But this is not about my judgment. It's not about how anybody looks at you. It's about your heart. As it relates to me in particular, you should be aware of this just as housekeeping. I have absolutely zero idea of who gives what to the church and, and to the Lord besides what I give. And if I'm perfectly honest about that, Amanda does all that stuff. And I don't even know that. And that's okay with me too. But but really and truly, I have no idea what anybody gives. I refuse to know. 
um, because I'm going to preach what the Lord gives me and I'm not going to be encumbered by the fear of offending somebody who may be a big giver. But even more so, don't worry about me. Giving is between you and the Lord. The question is always that of the heart and what the Lord has done in your heart and is doing. And in verse 5, it's always about the heart. In verse 5 we read, So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Y'all, of all the examples of God doing the impossible to keep his word and to accomplish his will, this is the greatest. Because God is in the business of rousing hearts. Of taking our hearts first inclination to serve us. And making them alive and wanting to, to serve him. Such is the case with giving. Look, it comes down to this. If you know Jesus, if you've experienced his grace, you know that God has given and continues to give to you in ways you can never ever repay. And God calls you to give out of that context. You can't outgive God. This is why I read Psalm 50 at the beginning. Again, God is addressing his people and he says to him, I, don't, I, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of this idea of pay to play. I'm, I don't need your bulls. I don't need your goats. In the same way, God doesn't need your money. God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. And that must be where giving comes from. But if you don't know Christ, then you have not experienced that generosity. You don't know what it's like to be transformed. In this world where everything's basically the same, if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know the transforming power of his love. And I want you to. And he wants you to. If you've never committed to Christ, if, if you know he's not Lord of your life, if you just know about him but you don't know him, then turn to him today. Ask him to save you and he will. Come and talk to me and, and, and we'll get this squared away. But, and I'll, I'll, I'll socially distance while we talk. But nevertheless, y'all, if you've done that, and all of this from Ezra, and God always keeping his promises, but God doing the impossible, what greater impossibility is there than him changing somebody's heart? In this world that we live in, y'all know people don't change. And people don't change themselves. But God changes people all the time. I'm an example. And I want you to know this love as well. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we praise you for the testimony of your word as we... Look at the simple history of what took place for you to bring things about. We see these lessons, the value and the beauty, how it glorifies you when we just give from the heart. And yet, Father, we know that this isn't just about money either. It's about time. It's about talent. Father, please work in our hearts, those that know you, that we would examine our gratitude and our desire to glorify. For those here today that may not know you, please make them miserable. Let them see what they are missing, and in seeing it, let them turn to you. Draw them to yourself. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now as we close together, let's take our insert.
and sing, He leadeth me. Indeed, he does. Number 338, let's stand together as we sing. trying to be antisocial, but I'm not shaking hands afterward. Nevertheless, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.